Hello, and welcome back to the Heise Brothers Devotional Podcast. I'm David, and I'm here with my brother, Jonathan. How's it going, everybody? Last episode, we covered Genesis 2, the creation of Adam and Eve, and the implications of being created in the image of God, and Adam and Eve's model for marriage, among other topics. If you missed it, we encourage you to go back and take a listen. However, it's not required for this episode. In summation, in Genesis so far, we have God creating order out of chaos, sort of this Mm -hmm. idea of the waters, these tumultuous waters, and then God bringing up land and sort of bringing bringing an order into this creation out of out of those chaotic uh, elements. And then in the and that's in the days of creation, and then creating image bearers, that's humans, uh, out of the dust of the ground, as that that are supposed to be these stewards of this garden. And this garden is supposed to be this meeting place between heaven and earth, where God comes and and is in communion with with his creation. And in it, God put these trees, right, that are good for food. And then he also had these trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that's sort of what we've covered so far. Today, we'll be covering Genesis 3, the fall. And as we said last week, we are taking a theological approach to this reading of Genesis. And today is no exception. So, John, do you want to read us chapter... 3 verses 1 to 7. Absolutely. I'll be reading from the NIV. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit on the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Hmm. All right. That's that's a lot right there. That is you know? a lot. Right? There's a lot to unpack. So we get this serpent, Yeah. right? What What is this serpent? I mean, in the Jewish tradition... Uh, Jews had just sort of believed that eh, it was just a serpent, you know, but Christians, we have maybe a different, a little bit of a different understanding, right? What, right. Who, who is this serpent and why is he talking to Eve? And why does Eve not question everything when this serpent just sort of starts, you know, popping up and talking out of nowhere? Well, she was born yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, no, no. Bad joke. Right. But I'd say... First of all, I mean, this is imagery coming through here, but our the Christian perspective is that the serpent is Satan, the Satan, um, which comes from the Hebrew word for accuser, you know, the condemner, all that kind of stuff. So what we see going on here is that he is pointing her in a direction for this tree. And we talked a little bit about last week about what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And having done some more reading this week, I had a really good insight from one of my books that talked about how the tree ultimately is the opportunity for human beings to be selfish. 
to take something for themselves and to disregard God's instruction, which I think we hinted at, but I think that kind of sums up everything a little bit in a neater bow. Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. There's, there's definitely sort of a pride element to this Mm. that is, you know, the, the Satan is tempting humanity with being like God. And the actual word mm. is not necessarily on par with the creator God, the, the, uh, the Yahweh um, God, but rather one of the Elohim. Yeah. Right. So on the same level as say also the angels and the, you know, these other, these other created Elohim that we kind of touched on in our first episode. Uh, so, because it, it'll, it'll, some translations say you will be like gods, plural, mm. like small g gods. You will be yeah. like gods. Uh, so it, it is that sort of Elohim, and it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to kind of translate because Elohim has so many different uses. They've used it for God. They've used it for these other spiritual beings. Yeah, and yet to kind of insert there, both of those are all you will be more than you currently are. You can seize a form of power. It doesn't matter if it's truly the god yahweh or gods it's hey you can you can be more right and not only that but because we have a specific clue here you know the the name of the tree we we talked about this last week a little bit the name of the tree is the knowledge of good and evil now we know that the tree that that is created here was not in and of itself evil because it was part of god's creation and god stated when he created it that it was good Mm -hmm. So the tree in and of itself isn't evil, but it does bear with it this knowledge. And not only this knowledge, but this power, right? And that power may have been the power to define evil on your own, good and evil on your own terms, right? And so you're, apart apart from what God's definition of good is and God's definition of evil is, which is the true definition right it always will be and always has been and all and is always is the correct definition of good and evil but adam and eve taking this fruit are like no i'm going to define what good is on my own terms and what evil is on my own terms and that is by definition hubris right when we are saying we're going to be on par with god and 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 defining what evil is on our own terms And it's a rejection of God, ultimately, too. You know, I mean, that's a huge thing that God is giving paradise in the garden, that it's a gift, you know, because from a potential evolutionary perspective that's not entirely ruled out, there were other human beings on the earth, and yet they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't necessarily have this relationship with God that we see. So, you know, when we get to future problems of, like, Cain and Abel, well... Who were their brides? You know, did God just kind of form more brides for the dust? Did they have, you know, relations with their siblings or were there actually other people at the time? So moving on from all of that, though, I think there's another angle I'd like to look at here, and it's the way Satan accuses us. You know, so if we're going on kind of a, a, the theological approach, we're looking at, well, what is the character of Satan and how is he going to tempt us in our lives? And what is this going to look like? Mm. So what do you see going on here a little bit? Well, Satan likes to weave in truth within the lie. 
Yeah. Right. So there, there is this big lie here of you will not surely die. But in it, there is also truth. Right. Yeah. The truth is, yes, you will gain this knowledge and you will you will have the knowledge that is much like what God has. Right. That's sort of the truth. The other truth is, you know, Eve here wasn't given the full story from Adam. Right. Adam knew before Eve did that he was not supposed to eat this fruit. Eve here says you won't eat it and also you won't you're not supposed to touch it. But God never actually said that. God never said yeah. Don't touch the fruit. That came from Eve. So we know that she didn't really have the full story. Maybe that little bit was an, you know, an embellishment that came from Adam. And the implication there is that she may have thought that if she touched the fruit, she was going to die instantly hmm. in the snap of a finger. Or if she ate of it, she was going to die instantly. And and sort of this, the serpent here is giving her a half-truth, right? You're not going to die instantly yeah so but the truth the re the real truth is that if you eat it you are going to be cast out of this this garden you're not going to have access to the tree of life anymore and therefore you will eventually pass away and become dust again so so that's that's the line and that's um that's what the satan does is he he gives you a nugget of truth mm -hmm. embedded embedded within the lie so that when you see the nugget of truth you think that it's all true Right. There's that. And then, you know, when you think about Satan being the accuser, you know, that brings up courtroom imagery almost. And I'm reminded of the phrase that a good lawyer never asks a question that they don't already know the answer to. Right. So the very first question from the serpent is, did God really tell you not to eat any or not to eat from any tree in the garden? And the point is, he intentionally is giving a false question that mm. he knows that that's not what the answer is, but he's getting her to focus on something else. All of a sudden, he's getting her to focus on not literally the infinite number of other trees that they have access to. It's just the one. Hey, why can't I have that? Right. Why is that not for me? You know, why mm. is God holding back from me? You know, and it, he's turning the entire focus around. So it's very crafty, you know. Yes, it's... yes, it is. Um, the other thing that that Satan is doing here, the Satan, the accuser, is he is touching on the desires of our hearts, right? Mm -hmm. The desire of our heart. So it, you know, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, right? So that's part of our desire. Like, hey, you know, here's something that actually might taste good, and it looks, you know, it's, it looks all right. And then, mm. and then it's going to provide me with this wisdom. There's knowledge. Knowledge isn't a bad thing, is it? Wisdom isn't a bad thing. God surely wants me to have some sort of knowledge and wisdom, and eh, maybe, maybe yeah. he's got a point. You know, and so maybe God's holding back on from me. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. That's the that's the other, yeah. So. Satan, Satan is drawing on the desire of our hearts to, to become more than we are and our pride in wanting to become better and more equal to God. So Exactly. So before we move on, I just want to touch on verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So I think 
one of the interesting things that's going on there is becoming self-aware. You know, I think pre-fall there was a state of humanity that was aware and conscious and in communion of God and being able to focus on things outside of themselves. But by taking on the knowledge of good and evil, by choosing to define it on their own terms, they immediately realize how flawed they are and that they are now capable of judging each other. Mm. Yeah. And that, you know... It's definitely a breakdown of this sort of marital relationship that they have between Adam and Eve, right? They go and they hide in their own corners so that because they can not only see their own sin, they can see Mm -hmm. the other. And then they become become self-conscious of that. That's, yeah, that's definitely going on here. The other interesting parallel is that right before this, we hear from Moses that you know we hear in the narrative that they were naked and unashamed now yeah. they're naked and ashamed and seeking shelter so there is there's this loss of innocence yeah right there's this uh there's this immense weight of guilt and self-consciousness like you've said mm-hmm. becoming self-aware uh that happens in this moment so definitely you know the the tree lived up to the hype yeah you know the the tree definitely gave them some sort of a knowledge that they didn't have before and one could argue that that even created a spiritual death for them because they no longer had the same level of communion with god that they had absolutely so you have a breakdown of the marital relationship between Mm. each other you also have this breakdown of the relationship between man and god which which sort of collapses the entire triangle Mm -hmm. right so absolutely Yes, it's a it's it's definitely a tragic moment in human history, one that is still deeply felt to this day, because our creation isn't the same as we'll see coming mm-hmm. up here. Genesis chapter three, verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So here we have God coming into the picture. Yeah. Right in in verse eight, uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden. So, interestingly enough, the Lord seems to have some sort of corporeal form here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who knows? This may have actually been, you know, pre. This may have been a pre-birth Christ um, walking in the garden. It may have been the angel of the Lord, which has been mm-hmm. attributed to Christ. Um, it may have been. I I'm not sure. I have I have to look at the the passage a little bit more there, but the Lord God was walking in the garden and it made some sort of a, you know, God alerted the humans to his presence. Like here comes daddy, you know, (laughs) Uh Oh, daddy's coming. (laughs) We've been in that situation, right? John? Yep. (laughs) You know how brothers are. As soon as one of them starts crying in this case, me, because you know, little brother, there's always the big brother going, no, 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 sh- sh- no, no, sh- 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 oh. <laughs> yeah, we got into some pretty big shenanigans when we were, when we were younger. 
Uh, what are brothers for? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But anyway, so here comes here comes big big daddy comes along and uh, he he asks now this is this is an omniscient god yeah but yet he's asking these questions I think that that's that that's a profound realization for us here God is not answering asking these questions because he needs to know answers he already knows the answers to these questions correct so God is inviting uh, Adam and Eve to do something here. Mm-hmm. God is inviting them to come out from their hiding. He's he's calling them to confess, right? And not only that, he's also, I would argue, calling for calling Adam and Eve to repentance, right? Yeah. There's this. There, you know, have you eaten from this? From the, you know, so he's asking for confession here. Where are you? And you know, Adam says, "I hid. I was, I was naked, so I hid." And and God says, uh, "Who told you that you were naked?" Yeah, and I think you know a big thing that's going on here too is that God is not asking these questions for the arbitrary point of just relationship either, in the sense that you know He's not just reading out loud His side of the script that He knows the full script to. Right. I firmly believe that. God is asking these questions to bring light out and in a sense that man would have to give an account of what they did. There's mm-hmm. that ownership of saying, yes, I did this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did this. Mm-hmm. You know, you can always hear something said that you did, but you can't take ownership of it until you say it. Right. And I think that's that's a big part of what God is doing here is bringing ownership to life. Right. And part of the other tragedy here is that they, Adam and Eve, they don't really do all that good of a job of uh, of yeah. owning up to what this is, no. do they? <laughs> the very first thing out of his mouth is blame shifting. This yeah. woman you gave me, <laughs> she did it. She, yeah. she made me do it. Yeah. She, she yeah. gave me the food and I ate it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not really my fault. So yeah, that's uh, kind of lame. Yeah, kind of lame, Adam. Sorry, but uh, you could have, you know, you could have just said, yeah, you know what. I'm sorry, I ate it. Yeah, he could have he could have owned up to it, because earlier earlier in the passage, you know, I don't know that we actually read these words in this particular translation, but in some of the translations, it actually says, "And Adam, who was with her, mm-hmm. you know, so Adam was present for this. It's not like yeah. Eve walked over to the camp and said, "Hey, Adam, take this fruit and eat." Like. Adam knew where the fruit was coming from. There's culpability there. It's not, you know, it's not, doesn't all fall on the feet of Eve, right? Yeah. But he's overhearing this whole conversation. He could have talked her out of it, even. He, he could have talked her out of it. He could have said, you know what? This snake has given you a bunch of BS. Yeah. <laughs> and we need to address some of these and clarify this is what God actually said. And, you know, but that's not what happens here. Adam is like, no, Eve gave me this fruit, even, yeah. though, he, even though he was there. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it really highlights that I think even full ownership would have highlighted some sort of honor even, and yet in the state of their sin, they were in the most lowly state possible, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I keep going back to, because I've heard some people talking about, and I've read that, that God is actually calling adam to repent here and he utterly fails who knows what would have happened if adam had actually said 
yes, I did it and I'm sorry. And I'll never do it again. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, who knows if, if Adam had actually repented and owned up to it, there's a possibility that God would give grace. There's mm-hmm. a possibility, right? Um, but Adam doesn't. And so there's, there's uh, trouble you know, yeah. coming down their way. So, And it continues all the way down in verse 13. You know, God turns to the woman and says, what is this you have done? So now he's asking her, you know, not like, what have you done? You know, it's not necessarily this this big thing, but it's it's asking this in your own words. What did you just do? You know, what are you going to remember, you know, in your ownership of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she said, the serpent deceived me, so I ate, you know, I Again, again, pa- again, again, passing the buck and passing the blame, just like her husband did. Yeah. Right. So, again, Adam and Eve are equals here, and they and they are both doing exactly the same sin, which is not confessing and repenting from uh, from this the this bad thing from going against God's commandment. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not repenting from that. They're not repentant. They are defending themselves and passing the blame. And so she passes the blame on to the serpent who deceived her, right? So, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this first part, we we get we're getting to the curse now, mm-hmm. right? This is this is the beginning of of paradise lost. Uh, God is cursing this animal that deceived. He's cursing Satan, in other words, um, and you know, as we believe in the Christian tradition, he's cursing mm-hmm. Satan. But what does this mean here when he says there will be enmity between your offspring? And hers, her offspring will crush the head, and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? I don't think this is necessarily true of what it would have meant for the original audience, but I think this actually may be an indicator for Christ. Absolutely, in this in this moment, because you know we've heard Christ referred to as Adam too, or the second, the newer and better Adam who doesn't fail. And obviously, Adam 2 comes from Adam 1. He is the ultimate offspring of Adam and Eve, you know, being incarnate. But this enmity of, you know, what humanity is supposed to be versus the temptation to fall away from it. You know, for all of humanity, we're born in sin, as the psalmist tells us. You know, so that's going to affect us. And yet, we have the hope of this promise that someone of the line of Adam will yet overcome and crush the serpent's head. And it's going to come at a cost. I think that's the strike of the heel. Mm-hmm. It's the wounded victor yeah. right, of Christ. And I would argue that, yes, this is the very first messianic prophecy that we see in the Old Testament, right? This is, this is God in his own curse laying out the plan for salvation by saying there will come along a descendant who will defeat you through you wounding him hmm. right and it's it's a fatal wound so and when a venomous snake strikes your heel that's 
That's yeah. lights out. That's it. Yeah. So it's this wounded, this idea of the wounded victor um, that that I think is is very clearly on display here. So I think you're right on the money with that. So verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So this was not the original plan for marriage. Yeah. Right? Um, The desire for marriage was not to be uh, sort of this submissive wife over the overbearing husband. And I think that when God is saying this, he's not necessarily commanding those who love him to do this. He's more saying this as a matter of fact, right? As a, this is going to be a reality in the world, right? That the, that the marital, the equality in the marital relationship will break down, right? This is a very difficult passage. Yeah. It's not one that's, that's easy for us to read because we don't want this curse to be upon us anymore, right? This isn't a good thing. Correct. And I think, one thing to note here is this is descriptive, not prescriptive. That's that's what I'm trying to exactly. say. <laughs> in, exactly. Exactly. Not so many words. Like I'm taking ten minutes to yeah. say what you just said in two. So, but yeah. So this is this is descriptive, not prescriptive. So this is this is like those who are in sin. Yeah. Those who are broken because of because of what has happened here. This will be your reality. It's a descriptive thing. You're absolutely right from that. So God is not telling men to rule over their wives. That's not what's happening here. He's saying, get back in the kitchen, wench. (laughs) Right. It's just, it's not that at all. Right. No. Um, This is a forecast. Right. It's coming. It's a forecast of what's coming. And the interesting thing is throughout many societies, throughout all of human history, they tended to be patriarchal. You know, that's not, absolutely the case there have been matriarchal societies but you know the patriarchal society came about and i think it's actually in christianity that we start to see things moving away from that towards the original adam and eve pre-fall state because that in christ we have a framework to be healed from that Mm, to be healed from the overbearing patriarchal view Mm. you know and i think both sides gain from that it's not that you know, men are lesser in their marriage all of a sudden, but they get to enjoy their wives as God intended them to be. And wives get to enjoy their husbands as equals, mm-hmm. as was intended to be. Absolutely. Amen. To Adam, he said, because, of, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Hmm. Mortality and the curse of the cursing of creation itself. Uh, I heard a pastor um, way back when. I heard a sermon where this was actually God's grace at work because instead of cursing Adam directly, he redirected the curse to the ground. Hmm. 
that was the idea that that this pastor had um so instead of cursing you adam cursed it is the ground because of you but the interesting part of this is though that with the curse of the ground comes the labor and the Mm -hmm. toil right i think yeah a large part of what's going on there is that the communion relationship with God as provider is broken down. And with the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, with gaining that knowledge, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, we mentioned this idea of wanting things on our own terms and being able to define things for ourselves. And God is saying, well, guess what? If you're defining things for yourselves, it's really hard out there to navigate. You picked this. This is your own pick. Yeah. You know, and guess what? Because you don't know everything, you know, you might be able to try and name things for yourself, but because you don't know, it's going to seem impossible. You know, how on earth are you going to, you know, raise plants and life out of thorns and thistles? Right. You're going to have to figure it out. And that kind of gives us another idea of what sin is going on here. You know, another definition of sin is to miss the mark. Right. So when we think about the wages of missing the mark is death, in a cruel world outside of God's provision, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. And in D&D terms, we're squishy. Right. We, you know, we don't have claws. We don't have fangs. We don't have opposable toes. We don't have much going on for us other than a big brain to try and figure that out but that's not that big an advantage compared to the entire world right yeah nature is deadly yeah and i think just go to australia and you can figure that out (laughs) uh yes so you know we like to we like to think that we are the masters of our fate and you know i've actually been watching this series on uh on hulu called alone and it's about these people who are put out in the middle of nowhere by themselves it's a contest for five hundred thousand dollars and they're allowed to take 10 items with them and then they have to survive in nature Hmm. without any help with the 10 items that they're given and so and you would be surprised how many people tap out in the first week like there are 10 people usually by week two there's like seven (laughs) Like, yeah. you, you couldn't last a two-week vacation on your own, dude. Like, nature is deadly. Yeah. There's a lot out there that can kill you. There's a lot out there that just does not yield the kind of sustenance that you need to, to live and survive. And on a very real level here, you're absolutely right. The relationship, the provisional relationship between human beings and, and God has been broken down because of the actions of man in breaking that covenant relationship. Yeah, exactly. So let's take a look at the last little bit here. Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing of good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay, yeah. So, is God afraid of his creation here? No, absolutely not. This is mercy. Mm. Big time. Because, you know, we... So, to insert one idea here, 
in Jewish thought, the physical body and the soul are pretty much the same thing. You know, it's it's very much this Greek idea that we think of the soul departing the body. And we like to think, oh, well, it's our soul inside that got diluted, but the physical body is okay. When you think about it, it's creation, it's physical, it's the soul, it's all the same. It's been diluted and we have this problem of we can't live forever in this diluted, ruined state of sin. Mm. You know, I think that by definition would be hell to be in our to be in our own minds to be in ourselves for eternity in you one took sense. the words right out of my mouth John. sorry man <laughs> it's okay well no. we're, we're thinking along the same lines yeah, we here. are thinking yeah so to live in this cursed state after they had been in communion with their creator in the garden of eden right they mm. had been on a first name basis with the almighty man i mean it doesn't get much better than that right forget the trees that give you food forget the sweet water from the ground forget the paradise the real paradise was having that real relationship with the creator that is now absolutely broken down and and the shame and the guilt that they are feeling to live in that state forever is the definition of hell you're separated eternally from god that is the Mm -hmm. that's the definition of hell and and not only that but as you're in hell you realize that it's you and you alone that put you there god didn't put you there it's you and you alone you are culpable for your actions and your your own sin there is no one else who is culpable and so in that in that recognition and guilt it is eternal suffering and mm-hmm. anguish we you get a lot of flowery language later in scripture fire brimstone all yeah. that stuff but i really think that that's more i i think that that is much more of a allegorical description of what your spirit goes through yeah when you are in an in, in a state of existence that's like what we just described yeah it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, where he starts out with the picture of hell. I highly recommend anybody go out and read it. It's a very short story, um, not like an actual short story that's like a paragraph, but you know what I mean here. If you find a recording of it, I think it's only like two hours long or something like that. So very quick, easy read, all that kind of stuff. And as he's painting the picture of hell, C.S. Lewis describes this town where everybody is living on their own and the neighborhood keeps expanding because people just want to be by themselves more and more. And as a joke, he throws in this picture of Napoleon pacing around back and forth in this terrace that he's made for himself miles away from anybody else. And he's just going, it was this captain's fault and it was this general's fault. And he's constantly just shifting the blame of it was always somebody else's fault for all of eternity pacing back and forth and yeah that's that seems like a really good description of hell i mean i can't think of anything much worse than than something like that honestly yeah you know bring on the fire and brimstone compared to that (laughs) (laughs) so hmm so yeah, there's a lot of mercy here that God does not immediately condemn us to a state of hell, but he allows 
the possibility of redemption to still yet take place, but that redemption will require death. Yes. And I think there's one other interesting thing I wanted to note here as well. Um, Verse 21 says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve. So he's taking note of their shame and he's covering up, but this time rather than the fig leaves, it cost a living life of something of God's creation. It's the first covenant sacrifice. Yeah. It's the first, it's the, yes, it's the first atoning sacrifice. Um, God slaughtered an animal Mm -hmm. um, as a means of atoning for the sins of his creation and then clothed them in the skins of that, of that sacrifice. I've heard, I've definitely heard and read that before. So yes. Indeed. Should we look at the last couple verses here? Sure. Genesis chapter three, verses 23. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So one of the things that I've actually read is that this is a dramatic reversal because initially Adam and Eve were supposed to be the guardians and the caretakers of the garden. And now, instead of being that guardian, they have to be expelled and are now being, you know, the, the garden now has to be guarded from them. Yeah, that is a very interesting reversal that's going on in the sense that, you know, in man's hubris, in their sinful state, they still may want to choose eternity and choose hell. And yet God is preventing that. Well, I think that that's something that still goes on to this day. There are definitely Mm -hmm. people who choose to reject God. And that rejection uh, definitely leads people down some very dark paths. Yeah. Um, So, and, you know, that's something that we can all definitely be in prayer about is uh, praying for those who are so lost and so resentful that Mm -hmm. they will choose destruction over repentance yeah as uh, i heard in the sermon this morning following jesus is costly but it is far more costly not to follow jesus mm. amen well on that dark note i think we will have some more things to go through but and yet we still have the hope of jesus christ that has been foreshadowed a little bit through this text So we will find you next week. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Devotional.